in your Bible, the book of John, chapter number 13. John chapter 13, and we're going to read two verses of Scripture, not a long passage today. John chapter 13, and beginning in verse number 14, or 34. John 13, 34. And stand, if you will, as we read God's Word together today, please. John 14, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And you may be seated. The message today is what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Now, that's the message this morning. The series I'm beginning today for five weeks throughout the rest of October, I'm going to preach on learning to love, learning to love. And last week, I challenged our church that we need to become the single most loving place in eastern South Carolina if we intend to reach anybody else for Christ. I ask you this week, gave you a little suggested assignment that you go and try to show the love of God to some person outside the ministry of the church, not just to each other, that we minister to each other all the time but that we make a special effort to get outside the walls of our church family and that we show the love of Christ to people that we demonstrated. Back in 1966, there was a very well-known song. I love the song. It's melodic. It's got a good message to it. It doesn't have any dirty words in it. So you know it was written a long time ago, huh? And it's called, What the World Needs Now is love, sweet love, and I agree with that. It's one of the greatest needs in our world, and the song goes on to say, it's the only thing there's just too little of. And wouldn't you agree with me today? There's too little love shown today in our society. I figure that the guy who wrote that song might have attended a dull, cold church that morning, And he went away and he said to himself, those people proclaim love and they don't show it. They don't have it. Because I tried to sit down and nobody scooted over to give me a seat. And I came in and nobody smiled and greeted me very much. And uh, everything was kind of superficial and cold. And these people talk about love, love, love. In fact, Probably more sermons are preached on the love of God than any other single subject, and fewer people heed them. And so what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Boy, does the world need it. We live in such challenging, unusual, and even dark times. I had a guy write me a letter. He got his feelings hurt and left the church. He said, your preaching is just too dark. You talk about all this stuff happening in the world. How do you talk about it and not not be dark? I mean, look at the world. The news is pretty 
pretty dark, isn't it, Bob? <laughs> and so there's a lot of darkness in our world, social chaos, massive debt, moral collapse, corruption in the government, confusion in the medical field, military incompetence. Do you know the last time America won a war? 1945. We have the most military equipment and great men and women, but very incompetent leadership, as has been proven here in the last few weeks in our country. And in the spiritual world, spiritual apostasy, a drift, a turning from the true faith revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And COVID is what's given the elites, the reset people, it's given them the golden opportunity that they dreamed about to grab power and through isolation, lockdowns, quarantines, threats, fear, insecurity, they have increased their grip on our freedoms. And today, uh, it's a dark scene when we look at the world as it stands. We're being gaslighted every day, psychologically, uh, psychological war almost against our own people in our country. Now, I'm painting that picture, and it is a dark picture, but I'm painting the picture because I want to tell you about the light, and the light is love, but there's not enough light right now. There's not enough love in our society, is there? And so, you know what I have to accept? I have to accept the fact that in this world right now, as it is, as dark as it is, this is where God put me. Somebody said, we've got to bloom where we're planted. Well, the idea is we didn't get to choose when we would be born. We didn't get to choose who our parents were and a lot of things like that. So either you just go through your life regretting everything and sort of angry and bitter and wishing that you had been born in another century and another time and another place, or you accept it and you say, this is where God put me. He knew COVID was coming. He knew America was going to decline and collapse at some point in history. And he put us right in the middle of it. We are his people. And he put us here, and he put us here for a reason. Uncle Mordecai said to his niece, Queen Esther, back in the Old Testament, he said to her, as she faced the choice of a lifetime, he said, Esther, who knows, but you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows, but you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And ladies and gentlemen, God brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so there's some things we need to learn from God's Word, a lot of things we need to learn from God's Word. And one of them, and maybe primarily, is to learn how to love. Now, 
You know what I think when I begin a message for five weeks on learning how to love? And boy, I sure hope you will come every week and get it because I really think it would change your, I think it would change your life if you would learn and operate by the principles I'm going to be preaching. They're powerful things. I tell you, it's powerful stuff. But you know what I think? I think it's the greatest challenge of your life to learn how to love. By nature, we all look out for self, don't we? By nature, we look out for number one. Above everything else, we want to survive. And when survival is our number one value, we're not going to know how to love because love gives itself. Love puts itself on the line sometimes, and it's the hardest thing. I don't have it down. I'm preaching on it because I can preach from the Bible and tell you what God said, but very honestly, I haven't conquered all of this in my life. I'm learning to love, and I'm going to teach you what everything that I've been learning, and I just hope that God is going to revolutionize and revive our church and each of us. So I'm challenging you, challenging you, let's learn to love together here in the next, over this next month. Amen? Now, I want you to begin with me by thinking how the world thinks of love, because the world doesn't think very well of love. They they define the thing so terribly. How does the world think of love? I looked in my Webster's Dictionary, and I'm going to read to you several of the definitions, but there's more that I don't even have time to read. Number one, Webster said, love is a feeling of strong attraction. So remember the word attraction. Number two, he said, it's sexual desire. Number three, he says, it is affection based on admiration. Now, what happens if the person I admire fails to meet my expectations? So his definition is, it's an affection I have based on admiration or benevolence or common interest with somebody. And I could read you a dozen more definitions, but they all kind of, I've given you the heart of them there. And every definition I looked at is associated with good times and pleasant feelings. Every definition is associated with good times that people are having and pleasant feelings that they are uh, experiencing. And so I hear people say things like, I love my truck. And they think good things about their truck until it breaks down. (laughs) I love that dress you're wearing today. Or um, I love that song. That's our song. I was passing by the counter in our kitchen just day before yesterday. My wife had all these recipes laid out here. And uh, my wife has so many recipes She won't cook all those recipes unless she lives to be 180. I mean, she's got recipe books on recipe books. And I passed by, and I just happened to look at one of them. And you know what the heading it said? Desserts you'll love. And so we use love about our trucks and our desserts and our songs and our dresses and so on. That's not exactly what the Bible has in mind. And now, when I turn to my Bible, there are three words the Bible uses uh, to, uh, to, or three words that, we, that the ancient Greeks and, and we've come to know that 
uh, describe love, but they're not Bible words. One of the words is eros, from which we get the word erotic. And so, you associate that immediately with pornography, don't you? Erotic. And it has to do with uh, sexual attraction. And so, much of what people think about in American society today has to do with sensuality. If it's not just pure sex, at least it's, it, it's suggested. It, it has sexual overtones. And so I turn on my radio and I listen. think I'll listen to some good country music. Oh, you'll find out what Eros is if you listen to country music. And you say, well, I'll listen to some rock music. Oh, it's worse. You can't even read the lyrics in public, or I couldn't at least. And so Eros sexual attraction. That's not what we're talking about, though. That word doesn't even appear in your Bible, so don't look for a reference. Then there's another word. It does appear in your Bible, phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly. Hebrews 13 and 1 uses it. It refers to let brotherly love continue, and that's friendship. It's I'm attracted to somebody. I like the way that they treat me, and so we kind of hit it off. We bond. There's a relationship formed of brotherly affection, if you will. But it's conditional most of the time. The phileo idea is very, very conditional. I love you, but if you cease to love me, I won't love you anymore. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's kind of a reciprocal type of relationship. And within that, there's selfishness. I'm thinking about me. If you don't treat me right, if, if we don't hit it off, well, then we won't love each other. Many marriages are built on the idea of phileo love. We're friends. We become involved. We develop a love bond for each other. But then somebody ceases to please me, so we go see the lawyer and the judge because the whole idea of love is, is, is just on a affection basis. There's another word that we use to describe love. It's called storge. Storge, you won't find it in your Bible either. You'll find the negative form of it. They put an A in front of it, astorge, but you won't find it in your Bible. Storge is blood love. It's the love that people have because they're related, they're kin, family love, if you will. Interesting, it's really an interesting concept the idea that, you ever notice that adopted children at some point almost inevitably begin to look for their biological parents, no matter how well they've been treated by their adopted parents? And why is it? There is this innate, natural longing within us to connect with our people that have the same bloodline. Storge, family love. Now, that's how the world thinks about love. It's either sexual attraction or it's brotherly affection based on relationship and common interest, phileo, or it's storge, it's I'm related, came from the same womb or whatever. And so the world thinks of love as pleasant feelings, good times, sexual pleasure, friendship, a reciprocal type relationship with people who treat me right. 
But I opened the pages of my Bible, and I find a very different kind of love described. And I began today in the book of Deuteronomy because so often I've heard people say, you know, God doesn't talk about loving us in the Old Testament, does He? That's uh, always in the New Testament. No, my friend, you're wrong. The love of God is all through your Bible. So we begin in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and I'm asking you to, I'm going to give you the references and let you read them with me. I don't need to talk about them and describe them a lot. I think, I think you'll see the truth of them as you just read the Scripture. Deuteronomy 7 and 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, said the Lord to the nation of Israel. The Lord thy God hath chosen you to be a special people unto your, himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than other nations, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, the only reason God chose Israel, he said, is because I loved you. And because, he said, I would keep the oath that I swear to your fathers, and I brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And God said, I just chose to love you. I determined, I decided one day, I picked you out of all the nations of the earth. You were the smallest of all the nations. And I did it because, one, I loved you, and number two, because way back there, I told Abraham that I would always treat his children in a special way if he would follow me. We made a covenant together, and I'm honoring that covenant by loving you, Israel. And there's a lot to learn here about love. Because the Hebrew word for love here, you will find it in verse number 7, the Lord did not set his love upon you. So there the Bible in the Old Testament, deep in the Old Testament, is teaching me that God is a God of love. He loves people. His love was unsolicited. God, by his own free act, decided and committed himself to love the people of the nation of Israel. The Lord chose you. They didn't even know him when he chose them. They were down there in Egypt. They weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping the gods of Egypt. And then the Lord chose them of all the people of the earth. Nothing in them recommended themselves to him. It was God's free will, his act that he chose them. I want you to notice, secondly, it was unmerited love. It was unsolicited love. It was, secondly, unmerited love. They had done nothing to deserve the love of God, to be the special people of God. There in verse 6, he talks about them being a holy people unto the Lord and a special people unto Him. But they weren't special in their behavior or in their looks or in their attitudes. They weren't special. God's love was unmerited. They had done nothing to deserve His love. Thirdly, not only was His love for them unsolicited, unmerited, it was unconditional. It was unconditional. God's love for us and for His people Israel, 
unconditional love. His love, in other words, didn't depend on their response. If they rejected him, he still loved them. If they broke his law, he still loved them. If they turned their back on him as they did and worshiped idol gods, he still loved them. His love, unsolicited. They did nothing themselves to deserve it. Unmerited, unconditional. Years ago, I wrote in the margin of my Bible a definition of unconditional love. And that's the kind of love we're trying to learn to have, isn't it? And put this down somewhere. This is good. And it's not from me, so I can brag on it, can I? Unconditional love means there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to cause Him to love me less. Boy, isn't that good? Unconditional love of Almighty God for us. There's nothing I can do that'll make God love me more. He already loves me with a love that spans the whole universe. Nothing I can do to make Him love me more. There's nothing I can do to make Him love me less. I could become the vilest sinner on the planet, and God's love for me would not cease. Go to Jeremiah. He tells us something else about his love here in the Old Testament. Chapter 31 and verse number 3, the Lord appeared of old, and he said, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness have I drawn you. Now, circle the word loving kindness in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God doesn't use the term about himself love near as often as he uses the term loving kindness. And so the psalmist, you just go over the book of Psalms sometime and go leafing through there, over and over and over and over, it talks about God's loving kindness. Instead of just saying His love, it talks about His loving, it connects kindness and love. It puts them together. And boy, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the love of God. God is loving, yes, but God is kind with His love as well. I've loved you with an eternal love, an everlasting love. God's love will never cease. Are you here today and you wonder, does God still love me because I did something that was terrible? I can tell you on the authority of that verse, God's love is unchanging, unsolicited, unmerited, unconditional, and eternal. It goes on and on and on and on throughout eternity. As long as he lives, his love will still be there. Hosea chapter 2 in your Bible, verse 19. Here's another way to describe God's love. I will betroth thee unto me forever, God said to the nation of Israel. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment or justice there. And in loving kindness, there it is again, and in mercy, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And what is he saying? The image here is that God is describing Israel 
and today us as his people. He's describing us as his bride. He is the husband. He is engaged to us. He is betrothed to us. He's married to us spiritually. We are, what do we, we, we refer to it all the time, we're the bride of Christ. You and I, the, the, all Christian people collectively across the world, we're the bride of Christ. He is betrothed to us. And as a faithful husband, he talks about being faithful here. He treats us with love, with loving kindness. He will never break his vow to us. God is, in his mind, married to his people. And he is a faithful husband. One more. Go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, because here is another picture of the wonderful love of Almighty God for his people. Isaiah 49 and 15, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, there are a few instances in which a mother forgets, but I will never forget. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. God has engraven his people the analogy, in the palms of his hands. It's permanent. It's etched there for all of eternity. And as unlikely as it is that a woman could forget her little nursing baby, as unlikely as that is, but sometimes it happens. We know that. But God says, that'll never happen here. I will never, ever forget you. So we look first what the world thinks about love, so distorted, so selfish, so, so inaccurate in every way. But now we come here, we're looking at what the Bible says about love. And it, and it describes it in terms like unsolicited, unmerited, unconditional, eternal, like a betrothal, like an eternal marriage, like a mother and a child. Only God says it's a step above that I will never forget. Now we go to the New Testament, though. And when we get to the New Testament, it's, we're introduced to a whole new level of love beyond all the loves that I've described henceforth or prior. And you know the word I've talked about a lot. It's called agape, A-G-A-P-E. You'll find it in every single reference to God or to Jesus Christ himself. This is the love of God. This goes above human love until we're saved and controlled by the Lord. Then we can exhibit agape love, but it's not natural to us. The natural love to us is the phileo phileo, love. version of love, if you will. But this kind of love supersedes and transcends far above, greater than all the love of man, the love of God, the agape love of God. For example, and you don't even need to turn to John 3.16, God so loved, that's agape, the word's agape. And it describes an unconditional love 
God so loved that He gave the condition for the redemption of mankind was the blood of His Son. Stop and think about that. The condition for forgiveness for the world is the blood of God's Son. He was the only one who was qualified, who was sinless. Did God hold back or flinch or say, that's too high a price? No, because His love is unconditional love. No conditions. So God has this love, and it always acts. The word agape is not a feeling. All the other words for love are connected to feelings and good times and pleasure that we trade back and forth that's reciprocal, but not when it comes to the love of God. Feelings have nothing to do with it. So God looks down. He must be repulsed by the sins of humanity, this dark world we're living in right now. But does that change the love of God? Not one bit. Not one bit. His love is unconditional, agape love, and He always acts. He doesn't act according to His feelings. That word agape is a, is a verb. It involves action. It involves intention. God determines this is how I act. This is how I behave. I'm not controlled by my feelings. Agape love is not subject to feelings. But you and I are in situations where we're just turned off by the situation. That person is so repulsive. That person is so ugly. That person is so unresponsive. No matter what I do, boy, they're unlovely. A few times I've had to counsel with somebody who was drunk. I mean, they're just Flat, flat drunk right there when I was talking to them. Is there anything as repulsive as somebody drunk and you're just going crazy in their actions and you're trying to reason with them? Uh, it would be funny, except it's so sad. And God looks down to situations where it's so repulsive, it's like dealing with somebody who's drunk and they're just being obnoxious. Doesn't change God's love. Isn't that wonderful that there is a being that loves us like that, that has the capacity even to love in that way? His love is controlled by His will. His love is not controlled by His feelings. That's us. His love is controlled by His will, by His holiness and His righteousness, His kindness. And all the other attributes. His attributes control his behavior toward us. And so we call it his love. Agape love is so powerful. Agape love, listen to me, it is so powerful. It's the only thing I know that can tame our lower nature. It can tame, it can, it can tame those lustful passionate impulses that get people into trouble in life. When the love of God becomes powerful enough in a person's life, they can overcome their addictions. 
They can overcome their hatred and their prejudice, their racism, or whatever it else it is that the sin that taunts them at the time. It can keep them in control when their anger wants to boil over. The agape love of God is powerful enough to control our lower base nature. It's willing to make sacrifices God so loved that He gave the ultimate sacrifice. Agape love always seeks the benefit, the good of the person loved. Our King James Bible translates the word agape in the New Testament many, many times over. Not every time, but most, many of the times. It translates the word agape, charity. And so in that love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, with which you're all familiar, and the Bible talks about and describes love in great detail. I don't have time to read it to you. But it doesn't call it love. It calls it charity. And I've heard people, well, why doesn't it just say love? And the scholars will tell you that charity probably is the single best definition you can find of what I'm trying to describe, agape love. When we act charitably towards somebody, we're not waiting for them to reciprocate. We're not asking them to come back in like manner to us, do something for us. Charity is a very powerful and very good definition of what we mean by agape love. Turn with me to 1 John. The love of God, I'm just trying to describe it, and boy, it's Whoa, it's hard to do. You feel so inadequate. Johnny Bassanio said, I feel like a little ligger batting in the World Series. I just can't tell you enough about the love of God. 1 John chapter number 4, 1 John 4 and verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God. And here it is, God is love. It doesn't say that God has love. It says that God is love. Just like the sun has, the sun is light. The sun is heat. The sun's very nature is going to come out. The sun doesn't wake up every morning and say, I think I'll shine today. It's its nature to shine. God doesn't wake up and God doesn't go to sleep. But God doesn't say, well, I need to love. No, love is his nature. He always loves. It's a permanent, ongoing thing. Like heat and light from the sun, so is the love of God and the holiness of God. Go down to verse 16. And we know and have believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, says it a second time in the chapter. Over and over, God is trying to say to you, look, my very nature is love. Now, my last point real quickly. So we have how the world thinks of love, what the Bible says about love, and then my title, what the world needs now is love. But not sweet love. It's God's love. What the world needs now is love, God's love. One day the Pharisees and scribes gathered around Jesus and they said to him, what does God think of a sinner? 
basically Luke 15 and 2, if you want the reference. What does God think of a sinner? And they stood around him. I picture them like in a horseshoe, and their arms are folded waiting on Jesus. Trick question, they thought. They're going to mess him, catch him in some error here. What does God think of a sinner? And he didn't answer it with a principle. He told them a story. The father had two sons. One of them came to him and wanted his inheritance, the story of the prodigal son. The father gave him his inheritance because love sometimes deems it wise to go ahead and give people their choice, even if it isn't a good choice. And so love always requires a choice. The son went wild. You know the story. Spent all of his inheritance in riotous living. He's broke. He's in the hog pen. And the father's heard the rumors of how bad off his son is. And that father, oh, how that father's hurting. Night after night, that father lies there in his bed. And all of his wealth and possessions don't mean one thing to him. And he lays there through the night hours. He cannot sleep because he's wondering if he'll ever see that boy alive again. That boy is acting so foolishly, so irresponsibly. Why, if a runner came and told me that boy was dead, I would not be shocked. I would just be broken. And he waits, and he waits. And one day the son comes to himself, the Bible says. And the father ran. Now, the scholars all say that in that culture, no father in that kind of circumstance would ever run to the son. He'd wait for the son to come. Not this father. He runs. He sees that boy, throws his arms around him, kisses him, says, we're going to have the biggest party we ever had at this house. Kill the fatty calf, get the ring, a fresh robe, clean him up, give him a shower, scrub him down. We're going to have a blast tonight at our house. And the older brother, you know him, a self-righteous dude. There, I said it, dude. Got five more times saying this message here. Okay, so the self-righteous guy says, you never gave me a party. And he pouts, and he creates something of a scene. And finally, the father says to him, son, as he puts his arm around him, son, I love you just as much as I do him. But would you please try to understand what goes on in the heart of a father? When a boy was so lost as your brother was, and he comes home, would you try to understand what it's like to a father when a boy's been that lost and he comes home? And then Jesus looked at them. That's what God thinks of a sinner. That's what God thinks of a sinner. Because a fellow needs loving the most when he deserves it the least. A fellow needs loving the most when he doesn't deserve it at all. And the whole motivation of Jesus' life 
was to love people. See him in the manger? That's love. Think of what he gave up to be in the manger. See him ministering to the people? That's love. Look how they're treating him, rejecting him. That's love. You see him hanging on the cross? Oh, love beyond our comprehension. Under every picture of the cross, somebody else said, there ought to be inscribed these words, this is what I mean when I say I love you. This is what I mean as he hangs there. This is what I mean when I say that I love you. Now today, Christ is still winning the hearts of men and women through love. We'll never win people through coercion. We can't make them believe. You can't win them through argument. You can't win them through reasoning. If we are going to win people, we're going to win them because they understand just a little bit about the love of God. We have a definition for love over here in RU. Love is the willing, sacrificial giving of ourselves for the benefit of others with no thought of return. Love is the willing, sacrificial giving of ourself for the benefit of others without any thought of return. That'll heal your marriage, by the way. And that will win people to Christ. And that will bring back your errant child. And that will patch up the relationships that are broken. Love is the sacrificial giving of myself for the benefit of others without any thought of return. Now, let's go out into the world this week and let's learn to love like God loves. Stand to your feet with me if you will.